This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, does artificial intelligence belong in music? No artists, just computers. Music expert Eric Alper gives his take on modern music industry, modern concerts, and tells us if concerts are going to go digital versus human beings being live. Is a price freeze at Loblaws good for consumers or good for Loblaws? Food expert Sylvain Charlebois tells us why the company is freezing its prices and how that will impact Canadian wallets this winter, general price costs, and everything that we're going through with investigations into grocery as well. Do you have terrible cell phone coverage in your house? Handy Eddie Barrar helps us with tips on how to boost your signal strength. This is the Shift Podcast. It's time to dance. HandyAndyMedia.com is his website. HandyAndyBarar is here uh, to uh, to help us out with all of the things and uh, make the show look a little more handsome. <laughs> hey, buddy. How are you, Shane? I'm good, thank you very much. How is uh, the weather on the West Coast? We were talking about you and your uh, fantastic weather last night on the shift. It looks like we've only got a couple of days left. Today in Calgary, my car was 25.5. It's beautiful. It's just, it- it is really weird because you can see the leaves coming down, and typically you expect like a cold chill, but it's kind of like a summer's day at the same time. So all I know is I picked the best year to start a fall garden because right now my fall garden looks like a spring garden. It's unbelievable, Shane. When do we get salad? Oh, salads right now. I'm I'm at the point that I might freeze all – I had so many of these kale seeds, and I know kale you can grow in the fall. They're a really hardy type of vegetable. Kale, uh, spinach, and lettuce are typically what you can grow. And I have so much kale right now, Shane, that I might actually freeze it so I could use it in smoothies throughout the wintertime. Um, there's only so that. much kale. You know, someone you know can what I do for that? And, uh, I chop it into tiny squares. I have a chopper, one of those chopper yeah. things. Uh, looks what looks like an alligator. Um, I do one of those hungry hippo ones and I do that. And so what I do is I go to the store, I spend my three bucks on kale, I bring it home and I put it through the chopper and it may, it's a tiny squares, put it into a, a Tupperware container type thing and put it in the freezer, make my smoothies out of it every day. So I do it. I recommend it and, and do it yourself because when you go buy it from the store, I went to the store and I bought that frozen kale and I paid God knows how much for it. It was wild. And I'm it's like, expensive. this is. This is dumb. I can do this in ten minutes and not pay nine dollars a bag. I mean, it was two fifty for the kale. I love the fact that you said that because I was in the grocery store too. I saw that you can get kale and spinach frozen. They have it all yeah. broken up and everything, but it's expensive. So I was thinking the same thing, and you know, especially with COVID and being at home and the price of food going up, I started to think more and more about, you know, I got to get into this habit of growing food. And storing food and then using it like like how our, our grandfathers and grandparents did, you know, back in the yep. day, they would they were really good at that. And we somehow lost it, but we got to bring it back. So like, grow our own food, freeze it and use it all year round. Love it. OK, uh, since we talked about weather, I want to acknowledge that part just across the country quickly. Um, oh, I'm going to do one more here. The weather in Vancouver looks really great to the weekend. Um, then it's going to turn into a little bit more normal fall, by the way. And it's funny, actually, across the country because the weather's kind of backwards. Edmonton looks really nice, too, for a couple of days. But by Sunday, it's high of like three with showers and flurries. So welcome to reality. Calgary is about the same, 23 for the next couple of days. But then by Saturday, down to about seven with some rain. And the rain is very welcome. Winnipeg's been cold. It's been around zero. But then Winnipeg's going to go up to 15 degrees by Sunday. Toronto's been cold, showers and single digits, up to 17 degrees by Sunday. So the West Coast is trending down. Uh, Central Canada and uh, Ontario, Southern Ontario is trending up. Opposites. That's the way it works. All right. It's a strange, We're, strange uh, we, year of weather. That's for sure. It has. I loved it. It's what a beautiful summer. This is so good. Are we doing any more since we're talking about all this stuff now? Do you want to? No, we're done with our list of things to do with gardens today, are we? Yeah. No, we're good. Handy Eddie does the gardening. 
He also does the technology. He's a bit of a nerd. And let's talk about some of the gadgets that um, that you've got going on here because, I don't know about you, self-service in my neighborhood is terrible, which makes it even worse when I'm trying to be on the phone, go downstairs, all that stuff. Yeah, this is a problem a lot of people have. You know, they they ever, of course, everybody has a smartphone, but when they get home, and this is really important for people that don't have landlines, they get home, people try to call them and they just have bad cell reception indoors. Now, this could be in your home, it could be in your office, it could be even in your cottage. And typically, you don't really know what to do because it has to do with the towers. You might be far away from the towers. There might be obstruction from that cell tower to your home. There, it could be trees, concrete, buildings, what have you. So there is a solution. There are these what's called cell signal boosters that you could buy for your home. I got the chance to try one out, Shane, from a company called SureCall. They had a new one called the Fusion Professional. And essentially, it's a three-part system. You have an outdoor antenna, then through a wire that connects to an amplifier, which then connects to an indoor antenna. So that outdoor antenna, you have to face it directly to the nearest tower uh, around you. It's a directional antenna. So using an app, or in this case, I, I even though I'm a DIY, Shane, I wanted to test this thing out and I didn't want to be the weakest link. So I got it professionally installed by this company called Fraser Valley RF Solutions. And he had this machine that could actually tell where the this nearest cell tower was and the strength of it. So I was up on the roof, you know, moving around the antenna while he was on his computer. And then he tells me to stop right there. That's where the tower is. So I had it facing there. We had it amplified and then sent inside the home. And you know what? I, I've been skeptical. I would never know if these things work. But sure enough, the data speeds, the voice was okay inside my house, but the data speeds were really bad. And as soon as we turned this cell signal booster on, the, the data speeds went from like 5 megabits to 64 megabits down. It was absolutely amazing. So I can tell from, from this test that these seg- cell signal boosters do in fact work. However, this is something you do not want to do a DIY. You want to get it professionally installed because there's a lot that can go wrong doing this install. And it really comes down to facing the right tower to get that strongest signal inside your home. Kind of like tuning your satellite, right? Like you could probably do it yourself, but if you got a real pro, the dish is going to stay up there and your signal is going to be 99% as opposed to the 72 that I get, right? Um, yeah, and very cool. one of the the technician told me something that kind of blew me away. There are a lot of these cell signal boosters that you can buy on Amazon, these knockoff ones, and a lot of people will try to go home and they try to to set them up themselves. And if you don't get the antennas right in terms of where they're facing, sometimes people have them facing both antennas are facing each other. And then when you have the amplification, essentially you get like that feedback loop you would, you would get with speakers where you can kind of get that, you know, that loop uh, of a microphone hits a speaker. It has something similar with the cell range. But what happens is if somebody installs it incorrectly or has a knockoff product, if that's in your neighborhood, if your neighbor does that, it ruins the cell signal for everybody around you. So that's really important about these cell signal boosters is if you install it wrong or your neighbor does, everybody's going to suffer around you. It's It can be quite um, disturbing to the signal and we can't see it. So you don't realize it and we can't hear it, but it definitely is a problem. So you do want to get it professionally installed, but I can tell you they do work. Uh, I got data, and if you go to shiftheads.ca, you could actually see the video of the install, the test that we did, or of course, you could go on my website, handyandymedia.com as well, and I have that video posted. So seeing is believing. You can watch it from start to finish, the entire install of one of these cell signal boosters to kind of get that that cell signal boosted, whether it's voice or data inside your home. Very cool stuff. Um, learn more. And by the way, follow Andy's YouTube channel. That would be a real favor to me if you can do from linking on our site or his site. Either way, uh, get in on it. Um, okay, Wi-Fi in your house, Andy. Uh, we have networks. We often think about getting Wi-Fi just to be able to you know, get on the Internet. But your network, access to things inside your house and many other ideas can make your life a lot better. 
Yeah, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about what Wi-Fi can do outside of bringing internet into your home because, of course, we, we know what internet is, but a Wi-Fi creates what's called the intranet. So it's like a little network inside your home. And if you look at the new new printers out these days, you know, we use our mobile phones and mobile devices so much we have files on them that we need to print. In the olden days, you would email that to yourself and then open it up on your laptop, which is connected to your printer. But these days, if you have just with Wi-Fi, not even using the internet, just a Wi-Fi connection alone from your mobile device to your printer, you can easily print right from your phone to your printer. So that's a great use of Wi-Fi. Another thing to do is you'll notice that a lot of these routers uh, and even mesh network systems have a USB slot on the back. So what you can do is you can actually attach your printer to directly to your router or your modem, or you can attach an external hard drive, and then you can move files around. So what I did is I have what's called a network attack storage, a NAS device. So it's like a little mini server that you could have inside your house. And I'll use that to back up photos and videos from a variety of different devices, whether it's a laptop or even a phone. You can back up all those photos, get it off your device, and then you have it stored not just in the cloud, but on a physical hard drive that's inside your house. And that's a great tip because you want to save these photos that we take in the event that you have a a fire. Of course, you want it on the cloud, but you also want to try to back up everything on your own hard drives for safekeeping because you can take those hard drives out and then store it in like a safety deposit box later on and add a new hard drive in when you want to, you know, store more, more files. Handy Andy Barrar is our guest here on The Shift, talking about technology, talking about all of the uh, super nerdy things because he likes to do the gadgets, and you can follow along at handyandymedia.com. Where are we going next? Because I know recycling has been a conversation um, here on The Shift as, you know, recycling is really not good. Um, it's better than throwing it away. But reusing things until they die or having components that can be replaced so we can use phones longer and all of that, um, you know, that is such a better way to go. So before you get rid of those old devices, there are places you can donate them to. But we also, I don't know, I have a box of things in my garage for the e-cycling that just need to find a new home because they're dead. Um, I don't even know where to take it here. So what are some ideas that you might have, Andy, of what to do if they're no good and they're junk now? What do, you, what do we do with that stuff? Well, this is a big problem, Shane. A lot of people have these electronic devices sitting you know, in a cupboard or in a shoebox or in their garage just adding up, and they really don't know what to do about it. And that's because we really don't have a system for e-waste disposal. And the last Friday marked International E-Waste Day. And it's a great opportunity for us to uh, reflect on the impact of electronic waste. For example, the United Nations indicated that the world generated a staggering 53.6 million metric tons of e-waste in 2019. And out of that chain, only 17% of it was recycled. And so I think this is a big global problem that we have because you have all these manufacturers are trying to hype up us to buy the newest devices, the newest phones. These devices have a limited lifespan, generally, especially for a smartphone, about two years before they want you to upgrade. But there is no kind of you know, system in place on what we do with our old phones. And there is a lot of material inside there that can be recycled. For every one million pound or well one million cell phones that are recycled, you can recover thirty five thousand pounds of copper, seven hundred and seventy two pounds of silver, and seventy pounds of gold. So there's a lot of material that can be recycled, and we really don't have that infrastructure. However, if you look at your local recycling facilities, you want to check to see if they do take electronics. The other option chain is you could also check with your retailers. I know Staples, Best Buy both have recycling programs. London Drugs has a really good recycling program for electronics. And even the manufacturers like Apple and Google 
will now give you credit, sometimes the option to request a free shipping label to mail in some of your used gadgets uh, for recycling. But it is a problem because a lot of people just aren't recycling them. They're collecting those these devices, they're hoarding them, but they're not recycling them. So we need to have, or, or at least put more effort in getting that e-waste recycled and used properly so that we can get those precious metals out of them so they don't have to be uh, mined from, from, um, from the earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is better than throwing it out, but the reality is if you could repurpose those things, what a difference it makes, right? Like if you could just replace the piece that's broken, like maybe the battery on your phone or the RAM in your computer, um, that would be a, a big step forward for the government to mandate that these parts can't be so integrated that they, right? Like I have a, I have my laptop where if the RAM dies on my laptop, the whole logic board is gone. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just replace bits and pieces anymore. And no. it's cheaper to, they say it's cheaper them to produce, but we don't see that benefit on the other end. They're still making all their money regardless. And, uh, this is really the best way to go is if we could replace the bits and pieces. But in the meantime, do make sure it gets recycled. Yeah. One thing I would love to see happen in the near future is us to get a modular smartphone. So imagine you just have this phone. And then one day you decide, oh, you know what? The screen broke. I need a new screen. Then maybe a year later, you know what? I need a new battery. You know, and a year later that, you know what? I want to put a new camera in there. So it feels like you've had this one phone, but you've just kept switching it up. That's what I want, Shane. I don't want to have to buy a brand new phone. I just want the components. I want them to design a phone that is easy to fix, that any DIYer out there can just You know, like I did when I was a kid building computers from scratch, you would get all the components and put it together. We've never seen that in the smartphone space. And I think that's what society needs. Apple needs to make a modular iPhone that's both affordable and modular. I think that would be a great thing to see in the near future. Well, there are a couple of pieces of this puzzle that really do step forward. There is Project Aura, by the way, which is the, like, it's literally every separate piece of the phone. You yeah. can, you can do that. Um, but there's no big money behind it. It was like a Motorola Google thing that didn't really go very far. And there's another one that's actually called Fairphone. That's right. Um, but these are, these are not like mega. Yeah, production level things that you know it's kind of like that usb everyone having the same cord for the phones rule that's gone into europe if we could see that happen yes. with the modular bits and pieces which i believe the u.s government has put forward some some things around that that will have a massive impact on this conversation um too quickly let's get into this i know we don't have a lot of time um a metaverse thing that you've got um disappointment in the metaverse we've got about 30 seconds Yeah, so the latest data about the metaverse, especially for Facebook or Meta, their parent company, is not doing well. It turns out that most people that, you know, they always say, Shane, you you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, the people that try the metaverse, they don't come back. They don't, they're not there. They're there for less of a month. So Facebook is having a lot of problems. And honestly, I think it's time Mark Zuckerberg start to think about retirement or stepping down. I think he's just kind of out of touch with what the industry wants, but he's so powerful that he's changed this company, but it doesn't look like it's going in the right direction right now. All right, there you go. HandyAndyMedia.com. Recycling note from Trucker Kevin. Thank you very much for the suggestion in my city uh, for the e-cycling. Make sure you check out for what it is in your city as well. Thanks for being here, pal. Great to see you. Yep. Thanks, Shane. This is The Shift Podcast. The music industry is a very fickle beast. You have to understand, there is a deeply woven, deeply organized set of companies that own the rights to most of the things. It's big business. We've had here on The Shift some of these new companies, these asset holders that are buying the rights to music because they want to commercialize it, keep it alive, whatever. I think ABBA is a really great example of trying to find new ways to control their legacy. But what does the future of music look like? Eric Alper is here, the real Eric Alper, and all of his hair is uh, here on the show. <laughs> hey, buddy, how are you? I'm good, man. The music industry does not look like no. me. If it did, it would have been bankrupt in 1964. I don't know, man. You got plaid on and long hair now. 
I got the plaid. I got the hair. I got the jeans. Yeah. I got the wallet with the Black chain. T-shirt. I look like I did back when I was 16. I found my look and I stuck good with it. Good for me. you. And you do look good, by the <laughs> way. Um, Eric, uh, Eric has a multifaceted connection to music, aside from being just this music nerd. Um, you know, Eric works in, in representation, Eric works in tours, he works in all things music. So uh, what a great place to start this conversation. Um, ABBA's digital version of their concert, which is partially live, Mm. except for the fact that ABBA's not live. It's like they've found the fountain of youth. So why don't we start our conversation there about what the future of music is starting to look like after, uh, I think record labels, artists, had a couple of years to sit back and reflect on, is this working for me? Yeah, I love the idea of this hologram ABBA. Um, you know, and, and it's not the first time that we've seen this. We saw it with Tupac at Coachella a couple of years ago. Um, we saw it with um, the Roy Orbison estate was doing something like this. This isn't your Princess Leia Star Wars hologram from 1977 from that movie this is like an actual 3d image um it can talk to the crowd it can respond now all of this stuff is using actual footage um but i think that the the newer of an artist you get the more footage is available but wouldn't you want to go see elvis presley from 1956 in concert when you want to see the beatles in 64 or Jimi hendrix or even nirvana one more time like it's endless and i think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these venture capitalist companies are buying catalog is not just for radio anymore music isn't just for film and television anymore it's going to be omnipresent in ideas just like this now abba is presented with a different opportunity ABBA put on those sort of green suits that you see they use for video games and movies with the balls on it. And they put on those suits and did a bunch of recording to... Because ABBA was never like a dancing group. The thing about ABBA that's amazing, especially about this show, is that you can literally just go dance like you're at a club. Like it's like it's a club show. You can get your tickets that are on the dance floor. and But ABBA was more of like a... They were groovers, not dancers. So, but so they had very unique movements. And so what they did was they recorded all of the movements from the living artists. So now the computers have digested the general mannerisms of the band. Now they can use other actors and do these 2D renderings, these uh, sort of realistic cartoon type uh, renderings and whatever comes in the future with technology because they have the reference points. Elvis, we don't have the yeah. same reference points right. um, and those. So the the legacy of ABBA is really becoming, the, the foresight is just unbelievable of what can go into the future with this particular band. Is this the future of music, Eric? Yeah, and it happened really quickly compared to, say, us talking about vinyl records, which lasted 20 years and now, of course, is a comeback, or cassettes. The actual format of how we listened and watch music normally has about a 20-year period, um, much music, MTV, and so forth. But this seems to be a little bit of of a head of the game. We're hearing a lot about AI and virtual reality technology um, you know, and the music industry catching up. You know, earlier I was talking about Elvis Presley, you know, being able to maybe one day see a show um, with him in it. You know, when you talk about the artists from the 40s or 50s, 60s, and even in, in the 70s until around mid-1985, there weren't cameras around these artists. You, They protected their public image um, with the utmost respect and the utmost care. You didn't break through and get a hold of these artists, um, you know, photograph or video unless that you had a right to be there. Now you have artists from the 2010s, let's say onwards, that are spending every waking moment um, in front of technology and using technology. And so we might actually see 20, 30, 40 years down the road, us talking, or at least our kids talking about Drake and Justin Bieber in their earlier prime um, because the technology is there now. So, you know, there's no reason why ABBA couldn't do these concerts in 17 places around the world all at the same time, like the Harlem Globetrotters do when they have four basketball teams all situating themselves. It's it's astonishing 
what the creative process could be like and who's going to make money from all of this. Oh, yeah. Well, you can literally party with your friends halfway around the world and hear the songs at the same time. And this is the thing. This is where it gets to. And I don't know. I'm dreaming when I say this. But imagine this, Eric. You and I go to the same concert, right? You're in Toronto. I'm in Calgary. We put on our goggles. I don't know. Maybe we put on our earpieces, whatever. But we're in the environment. And this is the catch to me. We're in the metaverse. We're in the metaverse. But we're in the environment. So, But there's something about a concert when a subwoofer and the kick drum hits you. Right. Like you can't replicate that. Yeah. Like when you're in the when you're in a stadium or a hall and you get the hit in the chest with a good with a kick drum from the drummer, you can't replicate that. But if it's oh. if it's happening in two places at the same time and you and yeah. I are both we're in, I don't know, maybe five thousand people, one thousand people, we're in two separate halls. It's literally happening at the same time. You and I could be connected through earbuds or mouthpieces or goggles, and I can literally be with you, and I can enjoy, look at you, and see your face, see your reaction that you're going through right next to you, even though we're in two different cities. And that, to me, becomes where the live element of it happening still becomes, you can still feel it. I want to feel the music, Eric. Yeah, and and, and I know listeners out there are freaking scared to death right now about something like this um it's it's they can't imagine something like technology taking over something that they grew up with on an almost daily weekly or monthly basis which is going to shows but you know they have to understand that the next generation of music lovers that are 8 to 18 years old um even I'll put even up to 25 years old, they're drinking less, they're smoking less, they're going out less, they're not going to see live music in the same aspect as say you and I did or our generation did. So they're used to a completely different way of consuming music. They're used to being in this metaverse. They're used to playing video games. They're used to being first person shooters or first person characters in their in their context of it all. So this may seem absolutely strange and bizarre. How can you replicate a live show? How can you replicate anything live? But this is what, you know, those naysayers have been saying for ages and decades now is like one day the robots are going to take over and they're going to feel or at least help us feel what they want us to feel. And, you know, I, for one, welcome that that takeover because I think it's a very cool idea. Well, uh, our buddy Alan Cross wrote a great article. It's at globalnews.ca. Yeah. And I'm going to share that uh, link up at shiftheads.ca so you can refer to Alan's article about AI. We've talked about AI on the show a lot, AI music, AI artists. And um, he's got a great article talking about the future of it. Yeah. Now, but so let's take this, uh, Eric Alper, and, and talk about we've got ABBA that is recreating the past through technology and giving, I mean, they can't physically put on that same show anymore they've admitted that they're like look we don't got the jam we'd love to do it but we just don't have the jam and so they're creating a future from the history of music and then we go to uh, alan's article about ai and music like we've talked about here on the shift many times we sort of get to this crossroads where do we even need artists anymore and this has also been a conversation in paintings as well ai uh, designed paintings and artwork do is the human touch the big part of it, but it is possible. And I'm going to say, I mean, I worked, I had a business that dealt with record labels. Record labels are the most unforgiving organizations. (laughs) They are. And they are, it's like dealing with, uh, it's like dealing with these giant organizations that could care less um, about what, if you succeed, they would love to have no artists to deal with. No more green M&Ms in the backstage. Yeah, 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 yeah. No salaries, no royalties, no per diem, no complaining. They become the artist because um, it's it is a very good life. But yeah, I remember somebody somebody much older than me saying, you know, this industry would be great if it wasn't for the artists. Well, and yeah, how many artists would say this industry is great if it weren't for the labels? Huh. Goes Absol- the other way. Absolutely, and and now sadly they both kind of are are getting exactly what they want. You know, AI technology has been growing to the to the point where massive company, the company behind BTS, the single biggest selling group right now, the biggest group in the world, their management company has started investing in AI technology to perhaps create songs, not necessarily for BTS, because BTS is going into the army. And so that leaves a giant billion dollar hole for that company. So they're investing in perhaps AI technology in order to write and create 
create and produce and master and mix new songs for the general public. And the general public doesn't seem to care either way that they're created by a computer. I think that that's what happens when you grow up thinking in the 80s and 90s with bands like Depeche Mode or Tears for Fears, where everything was created by a computer. So this is just a little bit of a next step from it. But yeah, the music industry would just love it if they didn't have to deal with artists to a certain extent and they can just collect all their money on the royalties and and let them do what they do. The artists are saying, well, we don't actually, we may not need record labels anymore because we can market ourselves. If I have a big enough audience on Twitter or Instagram, I don't need you to buy an ad in a newspaper. I can just announce through a tweet or a Instagram post and reach 10 times more people than you can, Mr. Magazine Outlet. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens for sure. Now, we have a couple of crossroads here. And to your point about um, translate the top, change the topic, change the clarity. Even golf course caretakers will also tell you that is the best place to work until the golfers show up. So, right? Like, so, I mean, I think we all got, we all have a reference point. We, we all have a job that it would be much better for it wasn't for That's customers. right, exactly. If things like that didn't, you know, didn't impact mm-hmm. what, what we were doing. So, in all fairness to both sides, I think that we all, we all go through that. The conversation, though, Eric, when we talk about where this is going and the impact of all of it, I mean, I know artists that have had to make four times as much money to get through it when there when there's representation involved in all of this. Um, this could be this could be an opportunity, though. You see, the technology of AI still needs inspiration to pull from. Currently, it needs to go look at a Drake record. What's the number ones? Uh, now are the biggest selling records. Put the parameters on it. It will research that music. It'll do everything. And it'll go, okay, well, this was successful. This was successful. Okay, here's the top 10 songs from the last 10 years. What do they all have in common? Whatever. And then it will pull all that data and create a new song based on the history of the songs. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of different products that could come up as you adjust variables, but it's still just one inspiration place. Humanity has millions of inspirations and that's the one benefit that we have that the artists still bring that nobody else brings yeah and and but they've never been able the music industry hasn't been able to do it properly yet they tried to do it um with a ai character that was just a disaster not only was it um, racist and using, um, you know, African American language. Um, it kind of pretended that it was a Black American rapper. It turned out that it was like white songwriters behind it, and it was just, it was just atrocious, and it was just a, a really bad um, first step to it. But um, you know, before then, it, it kind of did okay. It sold a couple of thousand copies, and and uh, but you know, right now there's about a hundred thousand songs that are being uploaded each and every day on Spotify. In fact, Apple came out this week and said that they have just posted um, their their million, you know, their one hundred millionth song on the platform. So what's going to be interesting about feeding all of this data is is it going to mean anything? You know, you can't really go based on the last couple of years because it's so new. But like, could you type in, you know, the folk songs or the root songs or those classic songs of the last 50 years um, and, and go through it all? Because, you know, right now, who's to say that the music of today is going to be listened to 20 years from now? I think it is because those teenagers that are growing up right now, they're always going to be listening to the music that they're growing up on. But, you know, I don't think the audience cares so much that the person is real or not. I don't think that it matters as much as we think they, it does. And, and I was kind of struggling at this. I, I don't know if you were okay with it. When you first heard about the day of technology, you were, you know, I was like, oh, but it's not real. It's not real emotion, but it's like, well, what is real? Is Bob Dylan real? Bob Dylan's as fake as anybody else. Bob Dylan created, Bob Dylan's best creation was creating Bob Dylan. You know, the Beatles were as calculated as everything else. Bruce Springsteen is as calculated, making sure that he's wearing a white shirt and blue jeans as anybody else that's out there. John Cougar Mellencamp. You know, John Cougar Mellencamp. So what exactly is real anyway? And that's, I think, when my when the drugs started to wear off and I was like, okay, back to work. <laughs> but like this, but like you go down this rabbit hole of like, well, who's to say that anybody is going to treat AI any different than we treat a real person? Mm-hmm. We we now have the technology to shape people's faces and create 
use, you know, a hundred different faces across the internet and create a whole new human being look that nobody's ever seen before. They could fool a lot of people, but I have a feeling that the music industry will still be fine with, you know, trying to work the Neil Young's, the uh, Fleetwood Macs, the people that they spent 150, $300 million on, on their royalty catalog. I think they're going to get their little bites first before start bringing in some new artists. Well, there is some, some sort of validation that comes from, um, a Fleetwood Mac show versus, you know, this is Joe Blow you've never met. Although I will throw out there, and I want to get into this part, Prozac from 20-some years ago, the car- the cartoon yeah, groups, right? Yeah, uh, that was I mean, those yeah. were real people, but it was all a cartoon. Yeah. All of the shows were cartoons, and people showed up to see the cartoons on stage, and it was all pre-scripted, and it was all pre-done, but it was done by real people. But Eric Alper, let's talk about what happens in music today. And here in Canada, the government is holding back artists in a lot of ways because the government still only provides grants for albums for the most part. Um, And so in order to get grant money to make music, like we have to understand in Canada, most of our music is actually bought and paid for by taxpayers because the grants drive most things. They drive a lot of tours. There's some incredibly expensive, uh, tours that happen from very affluent artists in Canada that is still paid for by taxpayers and grant money. And they don't need the money, but they get the grant money, so they take it. I would probably take it too, so I'm not judging. So because of albums are made with grant money paid for by the government, singles is what the rest of the world is doing, though. So are we in Canada for Canadian artists at this crossroads of this old world, new world trying to dance with it all? Oh yeah, and it better end soon because I've been fighting for this, for for this technology, for this idea that albums are relevant to anybody in this industry, um, I, unless you're playing folk, jazz, blues, or classical music. It's really hard to get people to listen to three minutes of a song. It's almost impossible to get them to listen to a whole album. The Junos are like that as well. Where I've been on the the pop committee, um, and you know, no knock against Karis and the Junos, they know and everybody know that I'm a huge supporter of Canadian music, but we need to stop with the album artist of the year, whether it's pop or whether it's something else. Because the fact of the matter is, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be left off to the side of the road because they're just not making an mm-hmm. album and they're blowing up on Spotify and around the world um, on streaming services with billions of streams. And then after they have five number one hit somewhere around the world then they'll just put it into an album and then gently ask the people over at the government and other um you know funding areas um look i've created an album and that's and and it and it's a game that we all know and we all play and it's absolutely backward because now everybody knows that the money is in touring and you don't really get to tour unless you have you know, a bunch of singles or an album put together. So, but where it matters though, yeah, we got to get off of this album. Kit. It's uh, it's almost like they should just call it the multi-release artist of the year. Like any artist that has released yeah. more than three singles in a year or two singles. The, the arguments you, you would, you would be so happy to know and just to sit there because pop R and B rap, reggae, indigenous, uh, you can go from category to category within the same verse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what happened when you have a generation that grew up with an iPod that you can merge songs and genres together. And now you have no boundaries whatsoever. So, you know, yeah, you just yeah, we're you validated it. me a little bit there because I remember 20 years ago when uh, it was literally probably 2000. And um, I remember saying because it was when Eminem came out. And I, I remember saying I was working rock radio at the time. And I remember saying, like, this is the end of genres. Like rock fans are no yeah. longer going to be rock fans. And then you started what what came next, right? You had Linkin Park and you had all these hip hop yeah. rock, the, like the that new metal blend that started to happen. Yeah. And and the Judgment Night right. album. Right. And so then all, all this yeah. stuff started to come out. And I said, this is the end of genres. Like this is like, it's dumb now. People aren't going to go and listen to a radio station if they keep playing only rock, if they keep playing yeah. only pop. Now, we've seen the diversification of what is pop music in today, and then you have these alt-rock channels that are going, you know, pop eats our breakfast, yeah. right? They, they eat our lunch, and, yeah. and then they're killing us because they just people just go to the pop channels to hear these Imagine Dragons songs or whatever. So yeah. you know, I think we're there now, and you've just validated me a oh, little yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, no, no. 
Oh, 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 we're absolutely Steve Lacey's Bad Habit song. Steve Lacey is an artist that used to be in a band called The Internet, and it took him about eight years to break. Um, but Steve Lacey had the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 and around the world. The song is not only number one on the Hot 100, it's number one on the rock chart, on the Billboard Alternative rock chart, but also on the hip hop chart, the R&B chart, and the adult contemporary chart. It's the first song in music history that was able to break through number one on both the R&B and the rock chart at the same time these are the moments where you look back and say just like the judgment night scout chart just like woodstock 99 where the genres don't don't matter anymore i mean they do but you know not in the same yeah. way what's wrong with liking doja cat when you're a metalhead well, like there's nothing wrong you go with, to you go know? to the corn concert and turn around and go to fat boy slim in the tent behind you right afterwards yeah. right i mean that was hey that or that's what i call yeah. friday <laughs> Right. Eric Alper here, the real Eric Alper on Twitter and all those things. What's one artist that you're excited? I mean, I know that you still love music and you still work in it, so you, you still got to be excited about it. Um, what What's one artist that you're truly excited about? Just your personal taste doesn't have to be any business stuff, just personal taste yeah. that you're excited about right now. I went to Oshiega, Montreal, liking an artist named Sam Fender. I walked out of there obsessed with Sam Fender. If you love Bruce Springsteen, if you wonder what happened to this guy, the boss in in the 70s, um, just as astonishing. Um, sounds like Oasis, sounds like Bruce Springsteen, plays guitar like nobody's business, has a saxophone player oh, and just an, an amazing live show. I, I adore him. Yeah. I- yeah, more saxophone. We do, music. we do. That was a lost art. Uh, I'm going to add on to that list, boy, with Uke. I think that's absolutely fantastic too. Um, so we will open it up to the shift heads now. What music has you excited? It doesn't have to be new. It can be old. Maybe something you've discovered from the past. So we'll take that, 877-399-9898. What music has you excited today? Eric Alper, uh, music expert. I'm the man here on the shift. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for having me. We'll talk soon. This is the Shift Podcast. Just for fun at shiftheads.ca, we have been posting, they're probably fake. I'll just say what it is, but it's the rollbacks from Walmart when the rollback price is higher than the original price, or it's like, was $9.99, now rollback $13.99. There's a bunch of them on the internet, and... um, <laughs> they're rolling back to when the prices were higher um they could be fake so but we've all seen them and they're fun to share sylvain charlebois is here um he's the food guy um the food nerd um all the things food actually what did i just read um the food no there's a name that's been pasted on some of your stuff that gives you a title the food something oh, i don't crap. know i gotta find it i've been called many things shane you know this is this is true yeah. And I would say uh, handsome is one of them with your nice shirt today as we're on the Zoom call here. Uh, he's a teacher too, right? Dahousie. And 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 so um, does all the professor things plus does all the food things. Now, investigations into food. I'm going to get political for a second. I'm not asking you to do it. Uh, but when the government is under investigation, a la Emergencies Act and all these other things that are going on, you watch the government will start to investigate things to distract. Now, I watch carefully the distraction of this, but hopefully it will work in our favor because the government is finally starting to look at food and what's going on. Sylvain, can you help us understand what is being looked at from the government? I'm not sure, actually, because uh, <laughs> about three weeks ago, I, I, I was testifying before the uh, Senate Committee on Finance, and they, they did ask me if it was worthwhile for the government to look into uh, greedflation, uh, food inflation. Mm-hmm. And my response was yes, as long as the scope of the investigation is beyond just retail, because I think there are a lot of issues that you need to look at. But the intent of an investigation is not necessarily to, uh, to get to the bottom of things. For me, it's more about education, allowing politicians, became public, to better understand food systems. And, and frankly, I, I think a lot, a lot of people just don't understand how food distribution works, which is why many blame grocers for higher prices, which is ludicrous because, I mean, if you look at the Royal Bank of Canada, they it, it has made more money in one quarter 
It's last quarter they made more money than all Canadian grocers combined in the last fiscal year. Mm-hmm. So it it doesn't really make sense. And frankly, margins have remained the same the last five years. But if you want to politicize the issue, fine. But make sure you educate the public in terms of how things actually work. So I did recommend that. And the following week, the Ag Committee decided to launch an investigation. They will, and I think they will invite a bunch of CEOs, and they probably will invite uh, me again to talk more about what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what are some of the practices we're seeing right now in the food industry that really uh, – would warrant a question mark. Now, let's talk about the hard the hard nuts and bolts in this, Sylvain. When prices go up by, call inflation 10%, because just easy math, I realize that's not accurate at the moment, but highs and lows, 10%. It's close, it's close. Okay. Yep. Uh, but when, they, when the margins, when prices go up by 10%, that means that their margins go up by 10% for the most part. So that means they are actually making more money, much like the government, when inflation goes up 10%, makes more tax income by 10%, right? Like everybody benefits on that end of this when inflation happens from the perspective of margins. Now, people tend to spend less. That is what sucks it back down again. Here's my concern with all of this. Price matching has become such a massive marketing tactic. And this is what I challenge with this idea. And remember, I'm just layman on the outside. So your clarity is very welcome. Marketing right now is all about price matching. We will price match. We will price match. Come into the store. We will price match. But see, that's putting the onus on the buyer always. You always talk about peanut butter. Peanut butter has always been sort of this core of the store that has never changed until recently. And if you ever want to you know, look at the core of the store, go to the middle of the store, right? And, but the price matching is that they might be keeping peanut butter as the same as everybody else, but you can see $5, $7 swings on items from store to store on other things outside that. And that's where the price matching to me becomes such a scam because they put the onus on the users knowing that nobody has time. Nobody can chase it all. Nobody can have the app. Everybody's too busy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to slide in a couple of these high price $5 plus items into your grocery basket that you don't have time to chase. And we're going to say we're the good guy because you can price match. The onus is on you. But here's what they're not doing. They're not marketing these days and competing on we are the lowest price. They're saying we think we're close, but you can let us know if we're not. And so they're not doing the work that, and I'm a capitalist, 100%, but they're not doing the work and they're taking full advantage of everybody being busy and putting the onus back in the buyer. And I struggle with that, bud. No, no, it's a, it's a good point. It's a fair point. Uh, the, the other practice that is becoming much more predominant is volume discounting. You know, buy, buying four lemons for the price of three. Mm-hmm. A lot of people live alone and uh, and they just don't need four lemons. And so you end up only buying one, an overpriced right. lemon. And right. that's the other. And it gives nobody an opportunity to be able to go and take advantage of those things when you got to, you know, you have to buy a family pack of chips at $7 when all that's you right. want is a $2 back of cheesies, right? Like, so you are spending more. And in this world of eco and having, I mean, I stacked groceries in a grocery warehouse for a time to make ends meet. And all of the conversation is how much cardboard are we recycling? How much plastics are we pulling out? All of the conversation. But they're actually pushing for consumerism, which is hypocritical to this notion of we're going to be more eco. Grocery bags. God, we could talk about grocery bags all day. But the reality is, is that grocery stores are, they've gone from the uh, front end cheap plastic bags to the back end problem. Then you've got a four times front end problem on paper bags, which is a better back end problem. And then you've got fabric bags, which is 140 uses at $2 a bag that are made with poly products that still have the exact same oils in them that the plastic bags did. So they're not even selling cotton bags. So to me, as much as that the grocery is saying, hey, we're doing all the right things, Sylvan, it is getting more and more hypocritical. And this is why I, I, this is the stuff that I want the grocery investigation to look at is the lack of responsibility and the taking full advantage of every narrative that's going on to profit right now. And I, I, I'm all for profit. 
It's, but they're doing it. They're doing but, it into broken humanity. No, it is. It is work for for people to have access to to savings for sure, which is actually why the Loblaw uh, price freeze uh, campaign is. I, I see it as as a good idea because it's a price freeze for three and a half months, which includes the holidays. And the holidays typically you see prices go up, to be honest. But they're they're not necessarily offering rebates; they're offering predictability. And I got to tell you, with a food inflation rate at ten point eight percent, you want predictability as much as possible. And that's what Loblaws is doing. There's, it, they're not putting the onus on consumers, as you mentioned, and they're not looking at volume discounts to get you to buy stuff you don't need. It's just 1,500 items that are cheap. No name is cheap. It's their bottom line sort of private label. And, and they, they're offering a good deal, 1,500 at a, at, a, at a fixed price for three and a half months. So it's a, it's actually a campaign that that I, that I actually like. Well, I do like that, and I think predictability is a good thing. It does play into the fact that but at they, least you they, know what you're going to get. Exactly. Well, they they approached me about a week ago. So I've, I think you know that about about six weeks ago, I actually did write an op-ed asking grocers to freeze prices, as as other grocers that we've seen in Europe and and in Australia and the United States. And I think it got people in boardrooms to talk uh, a little bit. And that's why I got the phone call from Loblaws last week telling me they're thinking about it. And on Thursday, they confirmed that they were going ahead with it on Monday, which is today. And uh, I'm pleased with their decision. But at the same time, I do expect a lot of cynicism out there because we know that Loblaws' track record around pricing is not great. But what about... Uh, and I agree with you. I think it's a it's it's a good start. But if they're freezing prices today after inflation, doesn't that just possibly secure prices at a higher price if it were to go down? Like, I mean, I, I you know that's like that's like saying I'm going to get my electricity and my natural gas for a good price for the next three and years then, if I only lock market in now. Prices dump and then right. you get the <laughs> and my my mortgage rate right like this variable mortgage rate versus a fixed rate. I mean, we've played this gamble before, all of us. And doesn't that potentially cause problems? So I, you know, you could which be paying is, three dollars for I mean, apples. I've, I've given twenty-five interviews today, and everyone is asking me, "Are we going to save money?" Well, I don't know. All I can tell you is that it, you'll you'll get predictability, which you didn't get for the last two years. That's mm-hmm. that's what you'll get over the next three and a half months. You'll know exactly how much you're going to have to pay for butter, how much you're going to pay for your peanut butter, how much you're going to pay for your eggs. With 1,500 products, you got everything you need for your food basket. That's really what Loblaw announced today. So what are you seeing that are the vulnerable uh, foods? I mean, chicken and eggs has been on everybody's um, you know, radar as being not always accessible with everything that's gone on with the bird flu things and, and whatever. What are you seeing in, in your food expertise, Sylvain Charlebois, about what is happening um, in food today? Where are the variables? Where are the, um, the exposures that we have currently? Well, poultry is scary right now, to be honest, because of the avian flu. Uh, the, the avian flu is back. And so we saw the avian flu hit the, the first wave in the spring. Prices were impacted in Alberta and, and, and B.C. It did impact prices uh, in the east 15%. But now there's a new wave, and so which is happening really about a couple of months before the holidays. So we are expecting birds to be more expensive for the holidays. So that's... That's one thing that we're concerned about. The other thing is bakery. Bakery is just nuts. Uh, bakery's gone up 15% as well. Is that so, flour? Yeah. Mostly? Well, flour is fine, actually. It's just yeah. the, 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 the things you need flour for, <laughs> you know, right. the bread stuff. It's, it's more expensive. Uh, meat is more under control. The other thing that concerns me is the dollar. So if, if the dollar continues to to uh, to to drop uh, over the winter, all of the stuff you find in the produce section is, is going to get more expensive, unfortunately. Now, I don't bring this up to be political, so I'm going to ask, but I've got to name the guy because it was his speech. So, But Pierre Polyev did a really great thing about Manitic, Ontario. He talked about tomatoes and he talked about how how is it possible that I can go to Manitic to buy tomatoes in Manitic and they cost more than 
tomatoes that have been grown in Mexico brought in here because you now his his thing was carbon taxes and the impact of all these things yeah, on it. Yeah. Um, what is it I like for? <laughs> yeah, and I thought he presented it quite well. I don't say that as a political affiliation by any means, but I, I say that because I think he presented it quite well. And um, he talked about the impact of the carbon tax and how there are no credits in greenhouses for all the things that benefit, right? Like that's they still get carbon taxed on the fact that they're using um, the heat and the way they do it. But the reality is they actually are growing carbon dioxide friendly things, right? Yeah. So that was the whole point of that. But he has a point. You cannot support Canadian growers in a lot of ways unless you are willing to pay astronomical prices over import foods. Is that something that gets talked about in all this, Sylvain, about the prices of things? Or do we just go find the cheapest tomatoes we can find? We're hardwired to find bargains as consumers, and we have to accept that. So that, which is why I've been on this food autonomy bandwagon for a while, because we need to produce more and develop economies of scale so that local tomato actually becomes uh, becomes more affordable. The carbon tax uh, uh, issue is a real one. We don't know exactly how the carbon tax is impacting food prices. I think it 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 is impacting food prices, but we don't know to what extent. But uh, Pierre sure Poilievre actually was making a good point. I mean, is yeah. yeah, absolutely. We need to look into uh, local food competitiveness, or else yeah. it's hard. It's harder to build an agri-food economy here in Canada, for sure. Yeah, and um, so I mean, obviously, shipping with carbon tax is going to be impactful. But what about the fertilizer conversation? If the ag folks, is this where this kind of goes? Is that I know that the ag folks are feeling a little bit threatened with carbon tax and fertilizer notions yep. that are being batted about. Is that some of the the defensiveness that's going on right now in ag that you're seeing in some of these growers? They're going, wait a second, we got to stand up for this stuff now before this all comes to fruition. Because in my anecdotal conversations with some farmers that I know here, they're all talking about, like how I can't, I'm going to stop growing. I'm just going to go to ranching because yeah, yeah. I, I don't have enough space now to grow the same yield as I need to grow to be profitable with, um, without fertilizers and all the other things that, that go on. And just want a small side note, every farmer I know is the biggest environmentalist that's out there because they need oh, yeah. the environment to survive. So is that impacting what's going on in the ag world right now? I think so. Yeah, there's a there's a complete. I mean, the, I think everyone knows about this rural urban divide, but that rural rural urban divide is is nurtured by urban politics. Uh, and in Ottawa, we have a very urban centric government, which really doesn't want to pay much attention uh, to uh, rural economics at all. I mean. To, in order to grow food, you need to remain competitive. Uh, and right now, everything we're seeing coming out of Ottawa is making our agriculture greener but less competitive. So at some point, we're going to have to make a choice here. And yeah. the fertilizer emission uh, targets that uh, that is being not imposed but suggested by Ottawa is pretty scary. And that's why a lot of farmers are concerned. I'd be concerned too. What are you excited about, Sylvain Charlebois? I mean, when I mean, obviously, price freeze is an opportunity. Could go, could be good, could be bad. But it, what are you excited about when you're looking at what Canada's doing in food? Is there anything that really makes you go, "Yeah, you know what? We're nailing it here." I'd like to end on a positive note. Uh, canola. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, and maple syrup, Shane. Maple syrup. Yeah, yeah. Is that the, just, the maple syrup cartel is great in Quebec. It's awesome. I, I think that you, um, you've done, I, I think I've spoken to you around breakfast time before either uh, personally or this, and I do know how much you love that. So, um, no, I think I, it's, 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 so it's, it's our resiliency. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just kidding here, but I do think that farmers are, 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 are doing great despite ourselves. Okay. Uh, in processing, I think we can do better uh, in distribution as well. It's the innovation part that really amazes me these days, to be honest. There's, there, are, there are some accelerated programs out there that are helping entrepreneurs launch some really cool new products. Uh, and that's something we didn't see five years ago. Uh, the protein industries, uh, Canada Supercluster in Regina, uh, basically getting more companies to invest in Canada, in proteins, great story there for sure. So that cool. that excites me. I, I I've noticed uh, 
maybe I've just noticed it. Maybe it's always been there, but the venture capital angel fund and accelerator organizations that are really tech accelerator that are really starting to push inside ag uh, to look at how does this look in the future? I mean, I think that has been quite exciting that there seems to be more of it. There's a lot oh, yeah. more people paying attention to what's happening in food right now. And they're seeing an opportunity to really push it forward. And I don't want to discredit anybody in ag, but what I like are non-ag people going into ag. Yeah. Because they have a different perspective. So we're looking at, you know, cellular agriculture. Uh, yes, we're looking at bugs. Why not? I mean, we're looking at different things that weren't considered before, which is great. One thing for me um, that I've really noticed is my daughter. My daughter is, she lives in a small town, so she's sort of inherited um, rural life, if you will, lifestyle. Yeah. And for she's in grade 11 now, and what she's looking at for a career is welding. And there's a lot more women really? in welding these days. Yeah, there's a lot of women in welding these days, but her angle is really neat. She wants to, she's considering heavy machinery and she wants to do um, ag equipment and repairs so she can live that lifestyle and work inside that. That's exciting to see young people look at agriculture and supporting agriculture as a career, which I don't know anybody 20 years ago that was doing that. This is different. This is cool. That's great. You know, good for her. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think we need more. I have four kids. I got to get one of them to go into carpentry or plumbing or something. Uh, That's what we need. That's what we need. Yeah. 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 Or just get them out of the house, whatever works. Just get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Uh, It's your podcast. The food professor was the name that I couldn't think of earlier. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Take care, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 